Yeah, so good morning from my side. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Henk. I'm one of the elders in the congregation. And it's my privilege to introduce to you this morning the start of a new sermon series that we've been uh, praying about as an eldership team and as a, a core leadership team for quite a while, um, preparing and, and asking God for the right timing for this series. And we felt that this is the right timing for, for this series. And it's called Undignified. Quite a catchy word, undignified. It's a big word, and it actually means to appear foolish, unseemingly, and lacking dignity. How's that something to look forward to? Losing your dignity. Just grow older, and as you grow old, you slowly become aware of losing your dignity little by little, eh? The other day we were in the office, and Taninaki shared with us, you know, we just had this moment, and she shared with us how many times she has already fallen. And, and you're supposed to be like, oh, you know, and, but the way she explained it to us, we couldn't help laughing. We had such a fun time, and she, she explained to us the humiliation and how angry she gets with herself, and then with people around us, and they try to help, and then they're angry, she's angry at them, you know, because you feel undignified in that moment. You lose your dignity. What do people think if we stumble and fall? Um, so I wonder then, what is this series all about? Undignified. Don't you worry, wonder about it. So the objective of this sermon series is going to be the following. We want to encourage us as church into the following. Towards a lifestyle of undignified worship. Where we make ourselves undignified before the Lord. And some of you already like, okay, I'm out. No, no, I'm not doing that. Why? Because, because of a revelation of God. If we have a revelation of who God is, something in that makes it worth for us to say, I'm willing to give up my dignity. But it's based, and it comes from an authentic relationship with God. It cannot happen apart from a relationship with God. And it's despite our circumstances. And the moment I say lifestyle, you're already like, oh, do you mean Monday morning as well? And here's the thing, it's because he's worthy of our praise. And we just sang that song. And so what we're going to do is we're going to use stories from the book of Samuel, um, looking at the life of David, and we're going to refer to some um, suit suitable psalms, psalms, as a frame for our sermons. And we're going to look at the life of David, and we're going to see how he demonstrates to us a lifestyle of undignified worship in response to a revelation of God, coming from an authentic relationship with God despite these circumstances. And hopefully that's going to inspire us to see how we can then learn from David. I mean, we refer to King David as the psalmist, the one that's playing the harp, and we continuously lift him up as a hero, so let's learn from that hero, shall we? So today, the topic of this day, today's sermon is called Reverent Worship. We're going to unpack that with big words, eh? So we're going to go into those big words, and um, from this scripture that we're going to look at, we're going to see how David was ignorant 
in the way that he brought back the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem and how he had a revelation of God about the holiness of God, the glory of God, and how he demanded him or demands him to worship God with reverence or else he would face calamity. Okay, so we're going to see a little bit of something unfolding there. So as a Christian as well, we can be very sincere in our motives to praise God. We come to church. Don't we come to church for that reason? We want to worship God. And we assume that our worship is acceptable to God. And just like David, we might be ignorant about the prescribed way that it needs to be done. And then we can actually be sincerely wrong. Have you ever thought as a Christian that your idea about worship can be sincerely wrong? And hopefully today my job is to help you to see that you might be very sincerely wrong. <laughs> okay. And then our worship actually becomes redundant. It doesn't mean much. That's not the aim. Okay, so we're going to start. Round number one. Okay. We're going into the book of uh, 2 Samuel 6. You can turn to chapter 6, and we're going to follow that story of David bringing the ark of God back. The ark of God is returning to Jerusalem. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Great. So David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 of them. Quite a big gathering, eh? If, you, if your king gathers 30,000 people, it seems like this is a significant moment already. He and all his men went to Baalah, in brackets, Kiriath Jeharam, the place in Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, capital letter, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And in 1 Chronicles 13, David says, let's bring the ark of God back to us. And this is his motivation. He says, we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. Yo, what a shocking statement. Just think about it. Saul was the first king of Israel, and during the whole time that Saul was reigning as a king, he didn't bother to come and get the ark and bring it back to its rightful place. The ark. The ark of God, the ark of the covenant. The place where God made his glory manifest to the people was somewhere stuck in someone's home. And Saul didn't think it's important enough to bring it back so that they can inquire of the Lord. But David, when he became king, he realized we need the presence of God. We need God with us. And the whole assembly agreed to this because it seems right to all the people. This is a good idea, eh? Amen. It's a great idea. Come on, people. It's a God idea. I mean, God told them in the beginning to have the ark and to put it in the right place. So this is a God idea. It's not just a good idea. Come on, you need to work with me here. Okay, so this is what they do. You can just see the excitement of, of David. They set the ark of God on a new cart. Now, if they say cart, they actually mean an oxen cart. So they've got these two oxen and a cart there. And I can just imagine a new cart. It's like in church, someone would be sponsoring the ark. Okay, here's money for the ark. Another ark, the cart. Okay. Yes, some oxen. You can have my oxen. And they probably have decorated the thing very pretty because this is the most significant moment. We're going to bring back the ark of the Lord. So they put this oxen, they've got this cart, they put it on, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. I don't know why the Bible always have these small details. So, okay, it was on a hill. And then Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, 
uh, were guiding the new cart of, uh, with the ark on it. And Ahihu was walking in front. And then again, the Bible explains the detail and they leave something out. So he just says the one son is walking in front. Point. So you must guess, okay, so the other one is probably walking at the back. All right. For me, that detail is important. But we see a new cart. So that symbolizes for us the idea of only the best. We're not going to use the old cart that we've been using the last 15 years. We're going to get a brand new cart and put the ark on it, which means there's an excitement about the significant moment that causes us to say, let us give our best here. Let's focus here. And then this whole excitement about the ark, and you must ask, ask by now, ark, ark, ark. You say so many times, ark, what is the thing about the ark? I want to show you a picture um, of the ark. It's called the ark of covenant or the ark of testimony or the ark of the Lord. And it's believed to be the most sacred relic of the Israelites. It's a wooden chest that were covered in pure gold. And it was elaborately decorated on, on the, um, the, the, the lid of it. So it had these angel wings that would cover the whole thing. And it's called the mercy seat. And God's glory would manifest on this mercy seat. But inside of the ark, it, they contained the two stone tablets. Not the ones Moses wrote on because he broke it. He got angry. The ones that God himself wrote on was put in that ark. So the covenant, the law, was carried in this ark. And then in in Hebrews we see that also it contained the rod of um, Aaron, which was blossoming. Imagine that. It was blossoming without being planted in the soil. And that was a testimony to the people that they were chosen and then... Also, there was a pot of manna, the bread that fell. F- now, remember the manna, if you, if you don't eat it today, tomorrow it's going to rot. And that pot of manna was sustained in that ark wherever they went. It never rot. That's why it's called the ark of testimony. But more importantly, God spoke from the ark of covenant to Moses. God's glory will, would manifest there because the ark was placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle. The part that no one else could get to apart from the high priest once a year. Such a sacred place. And then God's glory would fill the whole dark tent. It was a pitch dark tent. If you read how it was constructed. There was no light in that little cubicle space. Nothing. But then God's presence presence manifested. And there's this bright light shining on this mercy seat. And then God would speak to the people. Can you just imagine the... The wonder of witnessing that. So the Ark of Covenant represents the presence of God, God with us. If they saw the cloud above the tent, because the people couldn't go in to see what was going on, but if they saw the cloud above the tent, they knew God is with us. So what happened? When the Ark was with them, they had success in battle. They won. If the Ark wasn't with them, they failed. They cross the Jordan, and God says to the priest, you put your feet in the, when you carry the ark, you put your feet in the water, and then the water departed, because God's presence was with him. So it's so significant. I don't know about you, but I am as thirsty as David was to get the presence of God in our lives. So they rejoiced because the presence of God is returning to Israel, to the capital city, Jerusalem. And this is what David does. David and all Israel were celebrating with 
all their might. Say with me, all their might. How many might do you have? I'm serious. Come on, there's a bit of might there. Okay? I'm going to challenge you here. All their might. Okay? Before the Lord. With castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, cymbals. And if you still don't believe that various musical instruments should be played in church, let's start here. Okay? In 1 Chronicles 13, it's also songs with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. It's quite a bit of a, a blab there. Trumpets blowing. All right? It's quite a sound. So it might have sound something like this. So here goes David with his instrument. Hey? And I want you to sing with me. So he goes like, in the presence of your people. Come on, do you have any? Might I will praise your name. For alone you are holding throne on the praises of Israel. Let us celebrate your goodness and his steadfast love. May your name be exalted here on earth and in heaven above. Let's go. Lie, 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 lie. Am I the only one dancing? Lie, 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 lie. Lie, lie. Oh, hang on, hang on. Maybe he didn't play the, the tambourine. Landry says she doesn't particularly like one. Maybe he was playing the cymbals. In the presence of the people. <laughs> lie, 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 lie. Let's go. Lie, 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 lie. And then the next moment, bang, David turns around and there's a dead body. Can you imagine standing in that crowd, laughing, singing, rejoicing, and then someone dies? He looked around and he saw Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, dead on the floor. Why? What happened? Can you imagine the change of mood in a, in a worship service when we praise God and someone dies on account of that? How can someone die while we're praising God? So what happened? The Bible says, when they came to the threshing floor, remember they're coming down from the hill, Uzzah reached out to the ark, in the other scripture it says, to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. Isn't that a logical thing to do? If the oxen stumble and the ark become unstabilized, or the cart, and the ark is going to fall, shouldn't you think that's a logical thing to reach out and stabilize it? For me, it sounds like a very sincere thing to do. You want to protect what is holy. You don't want that ark to be contaminated on the soil. And the Lord's anger burnt against Uzzah, and the Bible says, because of his irreverent act. And God struck him down and he died before God beside the ark of the, of the Lord. And David was angry. Because of the Lord's wrath broken out against Uzzah. And he called the place Perez Uzzah. And it means breaking out against Uzzah. Forever if you go past that place it will say this is the place where God broke out against Uzzah. Not, not a nice place to be at. Let's move on from that place. Now, imagine David's conflict here. We want to bring the ark, the presence, the glory of God, but we've got a dead body to carry. 
sounds like the holiness of God and the death that comes from the sinfulness of man. The living presence of God and a dead body. What do you do with that? How do you move forward with rejoicing from that part of the story? We see in Psalm 2, David warns the people. He got a revelation of actually a prophetic word of the Son of God. He says, I will proclaim, proclaim the Lord's decree. decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Then he says, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Celebrate, but with trembling. The same David that started off with his ignorant praise. And then he says this beautiful passage. Last night we watched an episode of the, of the, uh, the series Chosen, where Nicodemus had this encounter with God. Now that's not exactly in Scripture, but they portrayed this place where he quoted Psalm 2. And he started to kiss the hand of Jesus. And Jesus said, what are you doing? And he started to quote this beautiful psalm. And he says, kiss the son or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Kiss the son. Love him. Respect him. Know your place. Or else. But you see, this is not the first time that someone died on the account of returning the ark. It's actually the second time. The first time, I'm going to give you a backstory. was the Philistines actually captured the ark. They took it. And then they thought, we're going to have the ark, now we're going to be blessed. And the opposite happened, because they were not God's people. So they uh, experienced destruction, devastation. And in fact, God plagued them with rats and tumors. There was a tumor outbreak. You think COVID outbreak is worse. A tumor outbreak, cancer outbreak. And then eventually they passed on the ark from the one city to the other until they got to a place where like, we don't want this anymore. Take it back to its people. So they made a gold, for, for the five cities each, a golden rat and golden molds of the tumors. They put it in a chest on a cart, oxen cart again, with the ark, and they sent it back without any guidance. They said, if these oxen go immediately to the town of Israel, then we know it's this God that did it to us. If the oxen just go somewhere else, it was just a coincidence. But we don't want anything to do with it. So they sent it away, and the oxen went straight to Israel. And they came to the city, Beth Shemesh, and the people were harvesting the wheat, and they saw the ark coming. And the Bible says there was a great rejoicing because they saw the ark coming back. All right, so a miracle happening. The oxen came straight back to Israel, guided by the Lord himself. And it stopped near a big rock. And the Bible says they slaughtered those cows. That's like killing the holy cows. Okay? And they made a sacrifice to the Lord and they celebrated. And again on that day, 70 people died. You say, what? Why? Because 70 people dared to look into the ark. It's been away for such a long time. And it's back now. They're curious. They're like, I wonder what's inside. 70 people died. So it wasn't the first time when Uzzah died. Surely by now they should have learned. Yeah. Keep your distance here. 
And then they mourned heavily because they felt God gave them a heavy blow. And they said, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Important question, eh? David also reflects on that in Psalm 24. He says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And he goes on, he says, those with clean hands, a pure heart, those who trust, doesn't trust in idols or false gods, they will receive a blessing. Those who seek him, that's important. And then he says, lift up your head so that the king of glory can come in. We love this. It's a beautiful psalm. But that first question is a critical question. David must have had by now a revelation of the holiness of God that brings us actually to an uncomfortable place. We should ask ourselves, who can stand in the presence of the most holy God? How can you dare to just stand in his presence and not be struck dead? But David at that moment, when he saw the dead body, first of all, we saw that he was angry. But we also see that the Bible says he was afraid of the Lord that day. And he asked this question, he says, how can I ever bring the ark back to me? In other words, how can I ever dwell in God's presence? That's my desire. I cannot see how it's ever going to be done. How can I ever please God? How can I ever? Don't you, haven't you come to a place in your life where you've started to ask this question, but how can I ever? It doesn't seem to work out. I desire to be with God, but it never seems to work out. Will it ever happen? Is it ever possible? The beauty of this is um, anger, afraid. David is demonstrating to us that he's got strong emotions toward God. He was upset with God. Have you been in situations in your life that you felt you had the reason to be upset with God? He did. Someone died in his church service while they were sincerely praising God. What do you do when you're upset with God? Do you express your emotions to God? I mentioned last time, but um, I want to mention it again. So three years ago, a day before my birthday, my dad passed away. And in one day, in one sense, I would say, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And the next sense, I'm like, yo, the timing of this is just so off. And somehow I've, I feel I've got the right to be upset. Surely God should have known the next day is my birthday. Now forever I have to deal with this. I don't know, what about you? Don't you have things in your life that you feel, I've got a reason to be upset? Then what do you do with that? You see, David demonstrates to us a loving relationship with God where somehow he's not afraid to express that emotion. I would think now that you express your anger, surely now you're going to die. Not when you're singing with a tambourine. Somehow David understood that we can be authentic with God. We can share our emotion with him. We can be upset with God, and somehow God is not too much worried about that. And yet we think we cannot express our emotions to God. I dare not say to him, I'm upset. How does that sound like an authentic relationship? What if you are married and your spouse, let's say, the husband is a bit upset with the wife, but he never communicates that? Is there ever true intimacy there? Is there a real connection there? If they just keep up the facade, now I'm happy, I'm, I'm good, we're all good, we're all good, but in my heart, I'm really upset. No, a real relationship means we communicate those emotions. But then David did something. He's, the Bible says he was not willing to take up the ark of the Lord to be with him anymore. So instead he took it to the house of Obed-Edom. It's like, where's the nearest house? Pocket there. Okay, I don't want to take the risk anymore. 
This is now David acting out of fear. But then we see something here. The Bible says, God started to bless that house. Okay. So you're like, hmm. Mm, now leave it there for another month. Now God blesses that house. Hmm. <laughs> the point is, he failed in his mission. Mission failed. He didn't bring that back to ark. Now here's the thing. He had the right, didn't he have the right expression of worship? Wouldn't you say? I mean, we all started to get so excited. I mean, what a lack of worship service we had just now. He had all the elements, the singing, the dancing, the tambourine, the, you know, the trumpets. Everything was there that we would desire maybe in our worship. But yet he was unsuccessful in getting the ark back or getting the presence of God back. I'm asking this question, why? Did they miss a musical instrument or did they take a step wrong? So then suddenly we, we see the, the house of Obed-Edom is being blessed. And then round number two. Now King David was told the blessing of the Lord is on the house of Obed-Edom. In 1 Chronicles 15 it says here, Now after David constructed some buildings in the city, he prepared a place for the ark and pitched up a tent for it. It's like this time I'm going to be prepared. Let's put up a tent. This is where it's going to be. Okay, we're going to create the space for the ark to arrive. And David assembled all Israel in Jerusalem, the whole city. He likes to gather crowds, this guy. Eh? He makes it very dramatic. It's not just him. I would think if someone died on my account, maybe this time it's only going to be me so that if someone dies, it's me and no one else will pay the price. Why get more people involved again? And they bring, they bring back the ark, and we see such a desire of David to bring it back that he's going to have to figure out how, but he wants to get it back. He desires the presence of God so much. Now, David brings up the ark of the Lord to the, from the house of Obed-Edom with great rejoicing. Okay, so are you ready? Here we go again. In the presence of your people. So there they go again. And you would ask yourself, why would he dare to do it again if someone died? I would think, who's going to die this time? <laughs> My personality is like that. I'm not, mm-hmm. not going to do it again. What if things don't work out in your life that you planned, that you think it would work out? Maybe after prayer, you had a prayer and then things didn't work out. Are you still praising God with the same confidence and the same conviction as before? Just because something didn't work out, it doesn't mean your conviction about worshiping God should change. Amen? God is still worthy of our praise. Maybe our way, our methods was not effective or right. We messed up. Someone died. But it doesn't mean that we should stop praising God with confidence. And that's beautiful about David. And then we see... Again, he wears the linen ephod, the, the, the cloak that was wet, worn by the priest. And he was dancing before the Lord with all his might. I'm going to go, go there again, okay? Because some of you are still contemplating, should I get up or not? Okay. Peter was up, you know, from the go. And there were shouts and sound of trumpet. And I wonder to myself, you know, it seems like it's working this time. The Bible says, actually, the ark was entering the city of Jerusalem. Come on, mission accomplished. It works. Hooray, hooray. And I ask myself, why? Maybe it was, do you think it was maybe because this time they had more trumpets or a louder sound, a shout? This time they mentioned a shout. 
Was it because they shouted? Next Sunday, we're going to start with a shout. If that's the formula. But actually, it says they had the same worship expression. They were dancing, they were singing, they were shouting, there was trumpets. All of those things were the same. Nothing changed much. They had the same ingredients, but yet this time they were successful to bring it back. Do you know why? See, sometimes here, we as Christians, and especially in modern church, we go from the one church or the one service to the next service, and we start to measure the worship, and we say, how was the worship? Oh, you know, they sing too loud. Oh, no, they sing too soft. No, this church, oh, happy clappies. They clap too much. I can't handle it when people clap around me. No, these people are like dead. They never lift their hands. Oh, no, these people are dancing too much. They're disturbing me. No, these people never get off their chairs. They are just stiff. And we worship things. No, they sing too many Afrikaans. They sing too many English. And they sing to this and this, this instrument. And that was irritating me. And this was beautiful. And that was. And we start to measure worship by focusing on the musical elements and the expression. All the things that was mentioned here with David. And we're missing the presence of God altogether. We're missing the fact that worship was never meant to be just that. There's something else here. Now, I'm going to give us just two answers. And the, the answers actually comes from the book of 1 Chronicles 15, which is the same story, repeated, but just added a bit more detail. Two things, and then we're going to end. What was different this time? First of all, the second time, David acted with a reverence. We can say almost the word with a respect to the blood covenant. You see, the Bible says, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord has taken six steps, two, three, four, five, six, he sacrificed the bull and a fattened calf. That's a significant difference. This time, blood flowed. The first time, no blood. Remember what I said. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, someone died. David sort of got an understanding of the, atoning, the atonement that comes from the sacrificial blood. Or else, someone else will die. In 1 Chronicles it says, Because God has helped the Levites who carried the ark, um, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now, the commentaries are not that clear about whether it was the first six steps. They would take six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six, and then he would sacrifice. Or whether it was the 15 kilometers uh, that they had to travel, whether there was every six steps a sacrifice. That's not clear. Well, in that case, that's a lot of blood. <laughs> and they would slaughter the cows one by one, and the one commentary actually said, excuse the pun, but it would say, holy cow. <laughs> the point is, there was blood. And unless there was sacrificial blood, someone else would have died again. You see, the holiness of God demands, demands our reverent worship in response to the blood covenant. The word of God is clear about it. He says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We cannot enter God's presence unless there was blood because we have sinned. 
And then Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. So this was a prophetic action to say we all want the presence of God. We want to be in the glory of God. But just like today when we sacrifice this, sacrifice this cow or this bull or this lamb, this is pointing to Jesus hanging on the cross. Opening up the way for us. Because the day when Jesus died, guess what happened? The veil was torn. And suddenly, we all have access to the most holy presence of God. That sacred place which was only meant for the high priest once a year. Imagine you have a meeting with God once a year. And then you have to continue with the rest of the year on your own. Now he says, come. My son's blood is sufficient for you to stand in my presence with boldness and to sing and dance and make music without the fear of dying on account of it. Jesus makes it clear. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. Is your worship centered around Christ or about songs and methods and the things you do. Secondly, David acted with obedience to the Lord's commandments. So 1 Chronicles 15 says, he pulls the Levites together and he starts to give them the speech. He says, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of the Lord because the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord. And then he says this, he says, it was because you, the Levites, didn't bring it up the first time that the Lord broke out in his anger against us. It's almost like blaming the Levites, like it was because you didn't do it. No, he was supposed to command them to do it, okay? But it seems like David are quite clear on something here, hey? The previous time he had no idea. Let's put it on a card. This time he says, no, 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 hang on. And he says this important thing. He says, we did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Do you think it's important the way that you do things? Or do you only think, I think I'm going to do this and I've got the right idea, the right motive, and therefore God must just accept what I do. Now he realized it's important for us to inquire. So in between these two, the failed mission and the successful one, he had to go back to scriptures and to figure out why did it work in the time of Moses? Why did it not work when I tried it? And then he saw in the book of Deuteronomy that the Bible clearly says everything else in the tabernacle can be put on an oxen cart, but these articles must be carried on the shoulders by the Levites. God said it. That's a commandment. David was just ignorant about it. Can you see the danger of ignorance? Sitting here today and there's a lot of things that you don't know about the Bible. About what God is expecting of us. But this time God, ach, David inquired of the Lord. He went back and says, let's study. Let's see what's going on. And God gave him this revelation. And then they consecrated themselves. They put it on their shoulders. Brought it back. And the ark was back in Jerusalem. So it brings us to this question. What is irreverent worship and what is reverent worship? So irreverent worship is expressing our praise and worship in music and songs and rejoicing, dancing, all of that with sincerity, but it's based on ignorance and assumption. Ignorance because we ignore the fact that the holiness of God demands our death because we sinned. The holiness of God demands the blood of Christ or else we die. 
In other words, we cannot ignore the blood of Jesus and think we can worship God. It's based on assumption. We assume that our good works are good enough for us to sustain our relationship with God. We assume that the sincerity of our hearts is a good enough motive to justify our unscriptural way of, of worshiping God or praising God. Ignorance, assumption. The idea is the same. I want to worship God, but it's irreverent. Just like Uzzah, who thought it's a good idea for me to stabilize the ark. What is reverent worship then? That's still expressing praise to God, maybe through song and music and dance and all of this with sincerity. But it's based on two things. Faith in Christ and obedience to the Lord. Faith in Christ because we only rely on the finished work of Christ on the cross. The blood of Jesus paying the price, paving the way for us to have confidence to, to sing and dance before the Lord with a great noise without the fear of falling on the floor, lying there dead. Faith in Christ, because it's a finished work, it's enough. And then obedience to the Lord for inquiring about the Lord on how this praise should look like. The detail that's important for Him, maybe not for me, but for Him. Because I revere Him, I respect Him. So I want us to reflect on this. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore more on so what is the prescribed way that God is saying to us? I'm not going to go into that detail. I just want us to reflect this morning, and maybe you can close your eyes here. I want you to think about David and the way that he expressed himself and the way that there was two rounds. First one failed, second one. The first one, there was a lot of irreverence, ignorance, assumption. The second time, there was faith in God. There was faith in the blood. There was obedience to the Lord. But my question to you today is, are you worshiping God with reverence? In other words, is your worship Christ-centered? Is it still because of Jesus? Is it based on faith in Christ and the blood and appreciation for the blood of Christ? Or is there some secret, subtle idea of your own good works where you think you can impress God and sustain your relationship with Him? And I also want to ask if, if your worship is based on obedience to the Lord. Or do you have your own ideas of what praise and worship should look like in your life? Now, I only sing on a Sunday. I don't sing on Monday. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't believe in raising my hands. I don't believe in all these things. Or are you clear on what the Word of God is saying about how your praise should look like? Are we only convinced about praise when we on a rugby or soccer stadium and our sports team are achieving a goal and we go ballistic because then we don't worry about our theology, whether we're believing right or not. But when we come to church, then suddenly we, we start to think about it and we're like, no, I, d I don't think I should be that, that mad or that loud or that this or that. Do you have a conviction of how praise should, should be done according to scripture or do you have your own preset ideas? 
Do you have a lifestyle of worshiping God that goes beyond a Sunday service? What happens when you're in a meeting and there's an answer to a problem, maybe a budget problem, and God shows you where the money is, or there was a relational issue that suddenly resolved, or someone in your family was sick and they are now healed? How does your praise look then? Or can you only praise God on a Sunday morning from 9 to 10? And lastly is, are you in a living relationship with God that's based on faith in Christ and obedience to the Lord Jesus? If you find yourself this morning leaning towards irreverent worship where there's a lot of ignorance and assumption and maybe sincerity and good motives, but it's not fully in aligned with the Word of God, then my encouragement to you today is it's time for you to to get back to the heart of God. I'm not going to have a major repentance moment this morning. But through these next five or six weeks, we're going to have enough time for you to set your heart right with God, to align yourself with God. But I do want to pray for us. Lord, I just want to pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will help us to get a deeper conviction of, first of all, of who you are of how amazing you are, of of your holiness, of your glory, and what it really means. Lord, the privilege that we have to be in a relationship with you, to be standing alive in your presence without the fear of judgment because we know you've you've paved the way for us. Jesus, thank you for the precious blood, the sacrifice. And this morning I pray for us as a congregation that your Holy Spirit will do something in our hearts to shift us, to move us from irreverence to irreverent worship so that we can also be successful in being in your presence, your manifested presence, living from that place. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Lastly, I just want to encourage us practically on the following three things. I want to challenge you to commit to three things. Overall, it's a commitment to a reverent worship, but practically, first of all, I want to encourage you to commit to study Scripture. Maybe today it will inspire you to go back to the book of 2 Samuel or other scriptures, but to go back to the Word of God so that you can get your own conviction of what scriptural worship and praise should look like. We're also going to have material that's going to be sent out in the connect groups that you can work through so that we can get to the foundation of what scriptural worship and praise should look like. Secondly, can I challenge you towards cultivating a lifestyle of worship that moves beyond Sunday mornings? Try to see if you can worship God in the same way on a Monday at your workplace. At home, find the moments where you have an aha moment, a revelation of God, and you just respond to that and start to praise God so that it can become a lifestyle. See if you can praise God in all circumstances, not just when there's good weather, not just when you feel great, not just when things go right, even if things doesn't work out the way you thought. And then lastly, I want to challenge us to enjoy a living relationship with the Lord where you have faith in Christ, obedience to the Lord, and where you can be real with God, authentic with God, sharing your heart with God, sharing your intimate thoughts and emotions with Him, knowing that that's okay.
God wants you to communicate with him. Are you up for that challenge? Amen. Thank you, Jonathan.